Hi there, I'm Rory O'Connor, Professor of Health Psychology and a Mental Health Researcher at the University of Glasgow. And I'm Craig, a filmmaker and content creator at MQ Mental Health Research. And welcome to MQ Open Mind, a podcast that brings together lived experience with scientific research to help us to better understand mental health problems. And we hope to do so in a way that is accessible to all. This week we have MQ Ambassador and PTSD campaigner Sophie Brigden. After encountering a series of traumatic events while serving on tour in the British Army, Sophie subsequently developed post-traumatic stress disorder. In this episode, we spoke about the misconceptions about PTSD, supporting the mental health of the military, and taking the time to understand yourself. Hello and welcome to the latest edition or episode of um, MQ's Open Mind podcast. Um, I'm delighted, and Craig and I are delighted that we're joined today by Sophie Brigden. And Sophie is a is a coach, a consultant, and a trainer. Has worked across a whole wide range of organisations, uh, really trying to inform and leadership and change cultures and practice such that what we'll talk about the focus of today that informed by your own experience of PTSD, that what. Well, you, learning from your experience to inform policy and practice and what happens day to day in these organizations and hopefully helping others. So we're really excited to hear your story, Sophie, and, and really crucially what we all can learn from that informed lived experience and informing everyday life and also science, as we'll talk about some of the research priorities we hope in this area. So welcome, Sophie, to our podcast. Hi, good, good to meet you, Rory. Nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Fantastic, fantastic. Let's kick off then with our Craig and our sort of standard question as we open open the podcast. So, we, tell us a bit about your life, your sort of what you brought you into this sort of sphere of mental health. But I know obviously you've a teaching background and 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 obviously the army as well. So maybe tell us a bit about your journey, please. Well, if you're talking about where my interest from uh, around mental health came from, it stems from. Uh, I was an army officer and I still do some reservist work with them. And I was deployed out to Afghanistan and I experienced a series of traumatic events. Mm. And this led subsequently to post-traumatic stress disorder. And I hadn't had a mental illness before. I hadn't experienced mental health issues before. And I had absolutely no idea what was wrong initially or how to help myself and I was also faced with a system that was ill-equipped at that time when I was deployed to really help there was a lot of stigma around sort of emotions and mental health and so it took me quite a while to figure out how to help myself and it was that journey And what I went through that made me so passionate to want to share it, to get over the difficult experience and use it in a positive way to contribute back, I guess, to society. So we're not really sorry to hear, obviously, your experience of the traumatic experiences. Maybe we'll speak a little bit about that in more depth in a second and obviously what you've learned from it. But can I maybe just rewind a bit, though, in terms of so what brought you into the army first? Because you worked in teaching, you were a teacher 
previously, isn't that right? Yeah, I was an art teacher. <laughs> <laughs> and I love teaching to this day. And actually, I joined uh, the Education and Training Services, which is a core within the, the military. And part of that role was to teach. Um, but I felt I wanted greater challenge. I was looking for adventure. I was looking for growth. And I was dating a guy at that particular time who was just going through sand tests. And he said, why didn't you join the army? And I thought, my God, that's a bit crazy. And I thought about it and I thought about it long and hard. And especially the values, you know, uh, around what that represented. Um, and I decided to go for it. You go through a sort of at that time, it was um, a regular sort of sort of commissioning board. It was a sort of three day test after you've been to sort of a week weekend tests. And I got through and that was my year long sort of assault uh, at Sandhurst. Uh, lots of physical and sort of mental tests um, and learning about all aspects of leadership. Was it difficult going from being an art teacher to to joining the army? Yeah, it absolutely was, Craig. I mean, there were all sorts of abbreviations. It was a totally different type of environment that I hadn't gone into before. But I'd also signed up to that stretch and that growth. And I'd sort of done my PGCE and I, I just knew I, there was more to me than that. And it just seemed uh, a, a sort of a great career to go into. You know, there's all sorts of wonderful things that the army can give you and to lead people and to learn to be a better leader. And I and it was yeah. I mean, going through that school, I learned a lot and so the, about so myself. <laughs> absolutely, but then so sort of maybe moving forward with Craig's point about um, that jump from uh, teaching or teaching experience in PGCE and knowing that you wanted wanted to do more. So how, so you got into the army, and so how long was it before then you were deployed? Uh, it was only two years into my um, to to sort of I think it was two thousand and two thousand and seven when I was deployed. So I'd done a year at Sandhurst, uh, left in two thousand five, was uh, then um, at Tidworth. Um, for a couple of years and uh, then I deployed with a battalion to Afghanistan and what I didn't realize at the time was I was the only female initially attached to that battalion and deployed. So what are the stats in terms of the in terms of the number of male female ratio in terms of the army you're one person you you are one in that in your company or whatever your battalion or whatever but What's the broader statistics? When I joined, it was roughly about 145,000 people in the army. We know it's shrunk now, but only 4% were female. Wow. So you really were a minority. Yeah. And so in terms of what, so in terms of the training then, I'm just talking, so given obviously the, the experiences you encountered, what sort of training did you receive before being deployed to Afghanistan? I had some pre-deployment training, but apart from that, if you're talking about anything that psychologically yeah, prepared yeah. us, absolutely not. And I think, you know, if I think about it and I think about my generation and the type of conditioning, you know, um, it was synonymous with, with what was happening 
in society. We didn't talk about mental health, you know, then. We weren't talking about resilience and we weren't, I definitely didn't have anything at school that prepared me, you know, and, and that didn't happen in the military. It has definitely got better. Well, that's been a good news for Yeah, but obviously sad that um, that you've had to go through that. So maybe um, if it's okay, do you want to tell us about your experiences of of what happened that led to your PTSD and and then how, how you got the support? Because because in a sense, you're a good news story, and I hate using that term, but you're, you've come through it in that sense. My understanding, and obviously putting it, trying to obviously ensure that others don't experience what you've experienced. But you'd be great if, if you could, um, so we tell us a bit about what led up to it and then obviously how you got the help and support that was so beneficial. I initially deployed uh, with the battalion and I didn't really meet, we, I didn't integrate with the battalion really until I turned up at Bryce Norton, which wasn't great in itself because they didn't know me and I didn't know them. And um, we got out to Afghanistan and one of the first things they do is test weapons in the desert. And it was at that point that things started to unravel. And I was made an example of and humiliated in front of the whole battalion. So you're talking about 800 people there. And that message told me, you're not welcome. You stick up like a stick out like a sore, sore thumb you know, and, and you're not of value. And that's pretty hard when you've just stepped into a war zone. And actually, I really didn't feel, feel safe around then. But then there were a series of different sort of things that happened. So um, one of the uh, sort of roles that I had was working with the Americans um, and developing psychological sort of operations. So we were developing messages um, <clears throat> and it was all around trying to win the hearts and minds of the local population mm -hmm. and I got on with them very well and they invited me to dinner and it was one of the first times I met uh, the CEO and it was quite a few months in. So what's the CEO? CEO's a commanding officer? Commanding officer sorry and um, it was a summer tour so the Taliban were very happy to fight it was warm and hot and they were in their element so it was a difficult time but I was talking to the Americans about um, working in New York as a waitress and it, the commanding officer leant across and asked, so were you a topless waitress then? And the Americans felt really, really uncomfortable. I pushed back, but he continued to ask and it got more and more uncomfortable. And that situation meant that actually the Americans kept away from me to a certain degree mm -hmm. and then the final straw out there was actually I was working and training with an Afghan National Army commander and I was sexually assaulted mm -hmm. and I went and reported this to my commanding officer and he told me I would go back and train this guy but to take a pistol back in with me and I realized at that point I was just an object in his agenda and I, I, it was, it was the most unempowering yeah. feeling that I've ever had. And it got to a point where I did speak up, you know, and actually what I learned was you nip things in the bud really early. But I was so frightened to because of the consequences it might have on my career. Mm -hmm. And I think lots of people do this. So I let it go. And then I sort of spoke up and interestingly 
his behavior did change, but word got out. And actually what happened is they all avoided me. So mm. it became such an isolating experience. And you don't phone home, um, you know, you've got a sort of uh, a card and you have 20 minutes on it a week to call home. You don't call home and say, hey, somebody come and rescue me on EasyJet, do you? Um, oh. You know, so I was and I did have a choice. I could have left, but I didn't. But how did you manage your mental health in that, that time when you felt so isolated, so trapped and like physically as well as psychologically? What, did you, were there things that worked in the short term? I withdrew in in a way, but I just kept myself busy. And I mm -hmm. think it's what a lot of people do to avoid their emotions. Mm -hmm. I worked seven days a week and I worked as many hours as I could. And I didn't really think about it. And it was only when I came back. And what happened when I came back is you generally have something called decompression, which yeah. is where it, it used to be sort of Cyprus, a couple of weeks where they keep an eye on you to a certain degree and um you relax you have some fun but I was just sent back on my own straight onto a new job nobody checked up on me and when other people got their medals awarded at ceremony mine was sent in the post and it was at this point I'd lost my faith in the leadership I was frightened mm. I was frightened of men to a certain degree and I started ruminating and we all know when that ruminating starts, it starts to embed neurologically. And my stress response was getting worse. Yeah. And it was a real slow spiral down into what was, what I know is post-traumatic stress disorder. But I, because it was bullying, because it was sexual sort of um, assault, I was ashamed. I was ashamed and I internalized the experience, very full of anger. Mm. And there was a lot of moral injustice and they're really difficult emotions yeah. to process, right? And um, I just withdrew more and more into myself. My emotions were up and down and I suppressed the emotions, which was absolutely the wrong thing to do. And I kept telling myself, look, you haven't been involved in an explosion because all the talk about anyone that did have PTSD, you know, they, they were these war heroes that have been sort of in explosions, all sorts of stuff like that. I hadn't. Mm -hmm. So actually, what did I have to complain about? So I just pushed it down. And slowly but surely, you know, we know neurologically and we know so, so physiologically and psychologically, things got worse for me. And at my lowest point... My moods were erratic. I was having flashbacks. My brain was dysregulated. I was never present because I was always ruminating. Yeah. And my hair fell out. And my, my body was really out of whack. And because there was no real support in that system, I, I was totally alone in figuring it out for myself. And so actually, I, I, I mean, thank God I, I was educated. And I took money out of my mortgage to help and figure out what worked for me. And it was real trial and error yeah. with the types of interventions and help. And I figured out some things made me more dysregulated and some actually helped calm my central nervous system down. So then, so, go, so I mean, that just sounds awful. Um, so we really empathize with what that's just awful what you've gone through. Um, 
But so just thinking in terms of the of the trial and error stuff. So did so that first of all, did the did you get any support from the army? No, no. And it wasn't. I was too frightened. Yeah, I was too. You just frightened. said you didn't seek out help, and also because you're feeling so ashamed and. No, and actually, it you know, the army's got much better. But at that point, what they would have done is sent me to a doctor and put me on drugs. And I knew there was something instinctual in me that said that's not the root of the problem. And actually, as part of me, I started studying a master's in psychology to try and understand mm -hmm. as I started to get better. And I went to places like Combat Stress and yeah. other charities. And I could see, you know, there were people from maybe the late 80s and 90s that had been in Northern Ireland. And they were from a generation that were brought up, be stoic, be a man. And that looks like not expressing any vulnerability, shove it all down. Mm -hmm. And they were on lots of drugs. And I looked at that and I went, that is absolutely not going to be me. I'm going to find my own way through. And did you and did you did you go like see your GP or did you say did it all privately yourself then? Privately myself, and I didn't want it on my record. Mm. And um, if if honest, and I didn't think drugs were going to help. Look, drugs can help stabilize, but I I for me my rationale was. It was going to mask my issues. And when I, I read a seminal book, which I'm probably, you've probably all heard, which is uh, Bessel van der Kolk's, but The Body mm -hmm. Keeps the Score. And that's, that was, her, uh, it was a turning point mm -hmm. for me because it, it helped me understand that there were tools that I could use to empower myself. And that was really important for me, not to be solely reliant on anybody else outside of me. So learning things like yoga, meditation, journaling, all of those sorts of things would help me. And they were tools if I felt chronically stressed or dysregulated. Mm -hmm. But it also helped me learn about what trauma was, what was happening in my brain and why going and seeking counselling or talking straight away was making me more dysregulated. And why actually I needed interventions that calmed down my central nervous system first. And then I just experimented. I was so desperate by that point that I was like, I'll take any risk. So I found things like eye movement desensitization, reprocessing, and neurofeedback was an absolute game changer as well. And so the MDR then, so that was a, a benefit, benefit for you then? It helped me with the flashbacks, mm -hmm. but it didn't help me with the emotional dysregulation. I was still had chronic anxiety. Yeah. It was the neurofeedback that absolutely helped me with that, yeah. Oh. But I think what your, your story and experiences highlight is the importance of this tailored care. Now, it's awful that you've had to pay for that all yourself. Yeah. We should have availability of these evidence-based treatments like EMDR or whatever it may be. But it's and it's not necessarily that's one treatment or one response solves everything. It's tailoring that your need the, the needs you have to what's out there. And so did the talking therapy sense so like CBT or anything for anxiety? You know, you've got counselors, you've got psychotherapists, you've got clinical psychologists, psychiatrists. And I was like, which ones do I choose? Yeah. You know, I was baffled by it all. But what helped eventually 
to help me unpack my story was going to a, a, a psychotherapist afterwards mm-hmm. and then actually coaching even further down the line to reframe my story to unpack some of my beliefs and I really wanted to dig in there and clear this through and each time you know I got a little bit better I was like I'm not quite there I need to keep moving I was determined that I would absolutely get through this and and so so we're now what was what year was so I'm, I'm trying to make sense of my timeline was it 2006 2007, I would say I came back and my symptoms didn't sort of, they slowly sort of started, but, I, you know, I could see myself spiralling down at 2008 onwards. Mm-hmm. And um, I would say it took me about six years. Yeah, yeah. And it was a fight. It was a fight. Trauma is not something that's just a, a click of the fingers and then mm-hmm. you're through it. To, you know, it impacts the mind and body. You know, and it took me so long to understand it. If I'd understood mm. it, if I was educated and more people were talking about it, I don't think it would have taken the time. But just one, one thing just came to my head there was like, trauma is a, well, it's such a brilliant example of highlighting this artificial distinction between mind and body because it's in there. Not only are they, the, the interconnections are just so true in, that, in the example of trauma and how it does that impact and as you say all aspects of your physiology, your brain chemistry, your psychology, your, I mean, the whole, the whole spectrum. And so of course, then treatment and response and support has to address all of those aspects. So, but, but again, it comes back to the same point. It still is awfully, we live in a world in which if you hadn't had the, the actual resources to get, to pay for your own treatment, you, or I mean, or your employer didn't, that's just that's just unacceptable, totally unacceptable. Absolutely. I was one of the lucky ones. Yeah. I absolutely was, you know, and there are many less educated or ac- with access to the resources. Absolutely. Which is why I want to speak about it. But that, it's also in part explains how we do have this awful um, social gradient in terms of social background gradient linked to obviously mental health problems and your recovery. And PTSD and the same as any other mental health problem, people from more socially disadvantaged backgrounds are much more adversely affected. And that part of the part of that's traumatic backgrounds and disadvantage, but an, such an important bit is lack of access to treatment and support. And it's awful. So sorry, Craig, you've been trying to get in there again. Sorry. That's no, fine. Do you feel like the army is doing a, doing a better job at, at helping people transition after um, serving? I think yes. When I left, um, we had a two-week sort of career transition workshop, and that was it. And actually, you're going from a time where, I mean, I wasn't totally institutionalised. I was only there for eight years. Others had been there serving for multiple years. And to go from somewhere which, you know, it was a conveyor belt, it fed you, it cleaved clothed you it told you your role you know all of those things it dealt with your career it looked after you to suddenly getting out and you're on your own it also gave you housing to not having that you know is it is a greater shock for some than others for me you know um we weren't talking about networking in the military at that point and I didn't have a network at all 
And actually, in my own business, I've struggled because I haven't had the greatest of networks because my main network has been the army. Mm -hmm. Some people are better at it than others. They are talking about it more now. There is opportunities for people to do apprenticeships, I believe, and have um, work experiences outside of the military. And the military is also more accessible than it ever used to be. It it, it, also, it always used to be, you know, um, a standalone sort of misunderstood organisation that very much relied on itself. But it's seen over the years the importance of outside influence to help them with their culture and all sorts of processes and systems. So I think that has also helped. So the short answer is, yes, it has got better. I can't tell you the details, though, Craig. Yeah. Because I wonder if, do you feel that the lack of help, I know you said that they did help you a little bit with like some of the workshops, but do you feel like the lack of help uh, helped to worsen some of your, your symptoms, like uh, really like raise the stress level? Really good question. Yes, I felt... I mean, you go from a place where you move from job to job and you have a ready-made social life, you know, mm -hmm. and people around your age as well. And I didn't have a partner when I came out. And actually, I went into a situation where, where I, we know I withdrew from life anyway. And although I had some friends on, on the outside, it was a very isolating experience, probably... Um, increased by the fact that actually yeah I'd lost that whole social support network yeah really good question yeah but I think what, what I mean your question highlights Craig and I think the broader point is I mean this is obviously an MQ um, podcast and our focus is on research and and so over the I mean, we, we, over the years we have funded some research looking at treatments for PTSD but I think there, there's some work I think a few years ago led by a psychologist, I think it was Jennifer Wilde, MQ funded some of the work, but it was looking at a different occupational group, it was looking at paramedics and hospital staff, and again, trying to tailor treatment there in a, in a population where, uh, they, where obviously they're experiencing traumatic events every day in many cases, and, and there's some promising results there. But my memory of that research and the other, the field more broadly is, yeah, there is a growing evidence base for EMDR and other sort of treatments out there but, but there's still we don't know who the treatments work for necessarily and I think and again your um case Sophie highlights the point is there's no one size fits all it's the same for all psychological or psychosocial treatments and we need to look at it's that tailoring it's so key it's that understanding your needs and making sure we can uh, fit this um, as, as good as it can be and but we just need to do much more research on it. So maybe that leads me to, or sorry, so if you're trying to come in, I have a quick question for you on this, but you're, you're itching to come in there with a comment, I think. I was just going to say, you know, in terms of mental health research, I think um, I think that's sort of uh, re really, really important. Um, I think, you know, organisations and the army are doing things. They are getting much better at taking some responsibility to help people with their mental health. However, I fundamentally believe it is the individual's responsibility and choice to help themselves with their 
with their mental health because they do know themselves best. So having access, absolutely. But they need to understand and to be informed about what the options are to be able to choose what is right for them. Oh, absolutely. I think the empowerment thing is, is absolutely central. And But I think there is something in if you're an employer and in an organization like the army or the NHS in which you are exposing your employees to traumatic experiences, you have a, a moral responsibility and duty, okay. duty mm-hmm. of care. So I think it's fine that it's finding the balance, isn't it? But and that often when you're in a dark, difficult place, it's, it's I mean, yes, individual responsibility is really important, but if you're so so debilitated, so distressed so difficult for you to see light at the end of the tunnel, see the options and and work out what works for you. Absolutely. And I guess part of why I'm speaking out is I haven't connected with other people that have had PTSD. So it has been an absolutely lonely, lonely journey. But there are many people out there that have suffered from PTSD, you know, um, and some sadly on the streets and homeless, as we know. Um, because they haven't managed to have the resources or the support that I managed to find ultimately in the end. So I think that is a key part of it. It is finding a community of support. And you know what? I don't think I could have actually got through if I hadn't had a few select people that stood by me the whole time because people did disappear from my life it was too difficult for them to face or they didn't understand or they weren't educated and they you know it's it's a difficult thing to face some people don't want to look at it right and if I hadn't had those few supporters I'm not sure whether I'd be here because they loved me and stuck by me throughout Mm -hmm. well because one of the recurrent themes I think everything you've said so far is that's well it and your experiences which led up to PTSD never mind the awfulness of the experiences but that theme of increased isolation increased feeling of loneliness and we as human beings we can't exist in that we we need those networks and supports and and so I'm so obviously it was great that you had those one or two individuals I think the other message I think to take from what you've been saying and, and why you're speaking out is so beneficial is it will help others feel less alone and also also hopefully encourage people around their loved ones, colleagues, friends to actually reach out and say, because that reaching out is so powerful. And also, you know, PTSD doesn't just have to come from an explosion. You know, it can be multiple little traumas, little T's. It could be a big trauma. There's all sorts of ways that you can develop PTSD. As you talked about paramedics. Very interesting. After speaking out, one of my very close friends who was a paramedic out in America, she talked to me about uh, the fact that actually she had and developed PTSD. And I talked to her about EMDR, which helped her. Yeah. No, and obviously, and the work that I do in terms of the field of suicide prevention, obviously trauma in all its guises is, is a marked risk factor, an important risk factor for suicide. And and that, but again, that sense of because we do a lot of work on this idea of entrapment, and it's that sense of being trapped and seeing suicide as the only way of ending your pain. And but what again, what I take from what you've been saying, Sophie, is having those people around you, being able to reach out and having those own resources to actually get the help. In some ways, you could see light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully, and you'd see a way out, which wasn't 
ending your life you're saying about obviously there could have been a time which you may not have been here thankfully oh my goodness are. yeah I it, I mean I it went through my head because it was something I'd never experienced before. It was the most frightening thing. And I thought, I cannot live. I have no quality of life like this. Mm -hmm. And I'm just further spiraling down. But it was those friendly faces that sort of kept me going. But also there was something core in me that said, take one step at a day. You're going to find a way forward and keep pushing. It was like, it's like a bit of a fog of war. There was yeah. no one in front of me or to the side of me saying, you, you're going to get better. I've been through it. You'll be okay. And that's what people need, you mm. know. Um, but, but yeah, thank goodness for those select people. Yeah. And just in terms of how common it is, like there's different statistics out there. We look at PTSD in the population and like saying, there's some stats from the United States. It's something like six percent of the population. And I think it's something similar. It's who will in the UK, which would experience um, PTSD at some stage in their lives. Because so, so when you, it's we translate that per six percent into people, that's a hell of a lot of people affected and needing help and support. Um, and those are the ones that report it. Remember, I didn't even report it, so mm -hmm. I'm one of the anomalies. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And. Yeah, and yeah, people who obviously have also experience post-traumatic symptoms but exactly don't go, don't acquire or get a diagnosis. Um, absolutely. So maybe can move the conversation on a bit, Sophie, in terms of thinking more positively in terms of your <laughs> the recovery and and well, the how your career has has evolved since then. So. So what? So what? You made a decision at some stage, and you really talk about your PTSD. So maybe you've started to touch on, I think, your sort of motivations behind that, helping others. But then moving into this consultancy training, sort of mentoring type role, can you maybe talk us about that bit of the journey? That'd be great. First of all, I think positively, I experienced something post called post traumatic growth. So within that, what I, you know, after that sort of horrific experience, what I found is a deeper relationship with myself, you know, um, which is absolutely fantastic. I learned the value of my emotions and I'm really passionate about that across so many different things, including leadership from emotional intelligence to our ethical decision making about being in alignment with ourselves and congruent with ourselves. Um, and I think I found a sense of deeper purpose in my life. And those that stayed with me, I have deeper relationships with. So those are really positive things that I want to sort of talk about. But I also want to talk about, um, and this starts with young leaders, my experience and the leadership decisions that happened, the lack of psychological safety, how groupthink happens, how people turn away. What happens when we don't manage our emotions and the value of authenticity? And I think that needs to start early. So it's working with schools, but it's also then going into organisations and talking about the experience and talking about, well, how do we create these psychologically sort of safe spaces? You know, we talk about authentic leadership, but what does that actually mean? What does it look like? And it's very difficult. You know, the male-dominated environment that I'm in, you know, I'm I'm teaching sort of male leaders now, it's still in the army, and they're being told one day, be stoic, be strong, you know, don't show your emotions. Now, I want you to be emotionally intelligent. We want you to be vulnerable, you know, and it's not a flick of a switch. 
Yeah. But it does take talking about it. And it, I also see the value of emotions, you know, in their leadership skills. Um, so it's a slow process, you know, uh, of doing that. So, so that's where I am. And then doing the talks around what I've been talking about, mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. experience of Afghanistan, because there's lots of richness. You can go down multiple paths. You can, I'm talking to females, um, to, to a sort of conference uh, next year about that experience. And again, one of my passions is not all of us have generationally been brought up with healthy role models to express emotion in healthy ways and so we go one of two ways we shut down and repress and that really impacts our relationships with ourselves and then with others Mm -hmm. and then that creates the cultures that we're in especially if we're leading or we're around other those sort of people or we don't we we're overly emotionally reliant on others And we um, don't have those boundaries in place. And there is a middle ground and not all of us have been shown that. So it's talking about the fact that actually in leadership, do we have to shut our emotions down? Or actually is it about having boundaries? You know, you can have vulnerability with boundaries. Mm -hmm. You can have empathy with boundaries, you know, and you can be authentic but you don't have to spill your guts out. And I think these are all really important conversations to have. If somebody would say, wait, in a line, what is authentic leadership? And like in your elevator pitch for, a, for what would you, are the key characteristics? I think you've certainly touched on some of the, the dimensions there, but for somebody who has no idea about authentic leadership, what is it? For me, it is somebody that is aligned with their core values and what they say and how they behave is in alignment. And that takes true self-awareness and consciousness. And I know there's a, you know, that they talk about, don't they, um, that only a a maximum of 5% of our habits, our behaviors are perhaps conscious and the rest is subconscious. Well, you're the common denominator in all of your experiences, you know? And actually it's about raising that consciousness. It's about having a relationship with yourself. And if you're not taught to have, a reflective relationship with yourself it's very very hard to be congruent mm-hmm. and I've definitely observed that in leadership yeah I suppose it's a bit, it reminds me a bit of reading some of Brenny Brown's work on if you've read any of her work on vulnerability and the power of vulnerability and um and, and this idea that obviously for too long and for men I think in particular we've seen vulnerability as a negative, but the point being that it's only through vulnerability will you really have some a true sense of self-awareness and self-actualization. And it's just recognizing let's harness that vulnerability as a way of obviously as a key strength and a key strength in leadership as well as in relationships and all aspects of our life. Sorry, we want connections with people. We want yeah. good relationships and we want safe spaces. So in order to connect. You know, we need that trust and that come. We know when people are authentic and when we can trust them. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I couldn't I couldn't agree more with you, Sophie. Craig, you're you're coming up with some question, I think, there, right? I was gonna say that it's it's quite an old-fashioned way of thinking to think being emotionless and stoic is the way to lead people, especially if you're going into war, you'd want 
to be empathetic with people that you know they're putting their lives on the line for you to feel like they're just a number it's uh it's quite um scary to think i i don't think they're necessarily like that i think a lot of military leaders have very good relationships with their soldiers but i definitely saw a percentage that were not healthy and it's not just in the military i see it in society you only have to look in the dating and the online world to see you know <laughs> that it is it, that patriarchal part of you know what it means to be a man and what that looks like there is there is that issue around emotions mm -hmm. and generationally that's going to take time to move you know and evolve and if you've been brought up in those environments like i said it's very hard to just switch off absolutely yeah yeah and i, I mean and, and i think there is i mean i've got teenage children and and it's clear that there that, that generational shift is happening and um, and that the way they talk about um, their emotions and how their friends talk about their emotions and life in general is very different. And I know every generation thinks my, my mother and father probably said something similar. But I think I do think there's something there has been a step change in this generation. And but there still are the stereotypes that I mean, that's what I'm not saying it's all fixed because it certainly isn't. And sadly, we know within even within the teenage and young adult population rates of mental health problems are on the increase and that's before the pandemic ever hit us and now we're going through this awful situation now with an impending recession cost of living crisis ukraine conflict all these things going on climate change i just so so there's a whole when we think about the conversations around mental health they have embraced all of those things now but what they've thrown up are all these challenges even more challenges we have to we face or continue to face as societies and and I and with young people, I, even though I love the fact of talking more about it, I do feel that God, they have a lot ahead of them that we didn't have in the same way. I think maybe maybe that's just me with some blinker view. I absolutely agree. I think maybe not, my, you know, um, maybe myself, but I definitely the older generation, my parents' generation, my brother, he's ten years older. I would say their lives were pretty stable. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, life was pretty stable. And actually, we're going through unprecedented uh, presidented times in terms of globalization, changes in technology. You know, the, you, your kids may go through university learning one thing and come out the other side and the job that they perhaps had in their mind is not there anymore. You know, there's such great uncertainty. So the good thing is they're being given the tools to help them be more resilient and flexibly adapt. But it is a generation that is older that was brought up in those more stable times that I think that are still working, that are still required, that are still getting deployed, that actually that that struggle, you know, that have never been taught to talk. And that's that's often the problem. Yeah, no, I know I agree, Sophie. And, and some there's some sociological work on this talk, and they talk about the buffer generation. And I'm sort of part of that buffer generation. It's like people that's in their sort of late 30s to mid late 40s, early 50s, in which exactly they haven't been, the, the, we haven't got the skills that we're hoping to impart on our kids and the generation coming behind us. And that that's idea of still having a stiff upper lip, the idea still does persist, or you don't, exp I mean, and you talk, Craig, about the stoicism, that stoicism still persists, still to some degree, especially in that midlife 
And I, so I, I couldn't agree more with that observation, Sophie, that, that we need to really do more with that group. And that and, and that also explains why, or in part explains why, if you look at the suicide rates, in, for example, in the UK, it's that middle group, that midlife are at highest risk. <clears throat> yeah, and also they are our leaders. Generally, they're higher up in our organisations. They, they are the influencers of the culture. They send the messages and they are the ones that, you know, that drive the agenda of what they want within their organisation. So it's really important that these leaders get on board. Yeah, absolutely. So just thinking, we've got probably a couple more questions and then we'll draw sort of draw down to um, to a close. Yes, I guess it's our main question is uh, what is your image of the future of mental health research? I think it's a really exciting time. I've already sort of talked about we've got technological advances, you know, uh, coming on thick and fast, which means that interventions are going to become even more innovative. But we've also got the growth of the understanding of the brain through neuroscience as it pioneers and pushes forward. Um, and so I, I hope um, that this will help a section of society with really tough mental illness challenges. And it will really improve the quality of their lives because my goodness, they are tough cookies to have lived, you know, with some of these really, really difficult mental illnesses. But I also hope that through this pioneering research, that as a society, at a systemic level, we become more educated. And that means that individuals can become more informed, you know, they make better decisions in tandem with the experts that they need to to work with. And perhaps, you know, there are other choices beyond drugs. Great answer. Great answer. No, I think that there are exciting advances in neuroscience without a shadow of a doubt. But I think it's also that recognition that any advances in our understanding and treatment of mental illness or mental health problems is by recognizing that we need to genuinely take a biological, psychological, social, and cultural viewpoint and look at that integration. That's where the advancements are really excitement, exciting advances are. And the roles you mentioned, Sophie, of technology really harnessing these new technologies, both in, te- in terms of detection and understanding, but as well as treatment and reach of those who are most vulnerable. Okay, Sophie, one last question for me before I do the last two sort of um, slightly different questions from what we've been having the conversation on thus far is, so you've obviously recently become an MQ ambassador. And so can you tell us about, so how did you get involved and and what are you hoping to do with that role, your MQ ambassador role? Uh, I believe you have another ambassador, Charlotte Wiseman, and I reached out to her to talk about, you know, what had gone on for me. And she suggested that I get in contact with you. So that's how I found out about you, researched and thought, absolutely, this is exactly what I stand for. And for me personally, why I became an ambassador is I don't think that without the research that have been on the internet and the work done by researchers or the clinical psychologists that I would have been able to access the right tools. And I might have been here, but not in the health that I am. So it is paramount. 
to 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 um yeah it was paramount to, to my journey to healing and yeah yeah that's it well that's, that's good admirable and um thanks for well signing up to be an ambassador and we're really excited to see the role your role evolve and develop and that's, that's brilliant thanks for that okay so sophie thanks for your time so far so two last sort of quick fiery questions which are unrelated to PTSD necessarily or your um, those experiences. But first one we try and ask all our guests is thinking back to obviously you're more than 16 years of age at this stage, I think. Um, so what advice would you give your 16-year-old self on reflection now? Number one, value your emotions, listen to them. They're there to help you and guide you. Um, and uh, the more you understand and relate, the more you can help yourself and do something early. Um, what else would I say? I would also say speak up earlier rather than later. Irrespective of the consequences, what you fear might happen. I learned, you know, you can't rely on anyone but yourself ultimately you have to have your own back so speak up and finally nip things in the bud get help reach out and find people safe to do that with fantastic great advice and, and this was a common theme across the three of them really is early intervention is the best thing to do it's earlier you act early respond the best chance in terms of recovery and support and so on so fantastic thanks for those wise words Sophie so the last one then again is tiny bit well sort of unfair but it's um well you're getting it out <laughs> we'll offer to answer this question anyway it's up to you um but no so again thinking about anybody past or present living or dead famous or not famous um who would you most like to have dinner with or a chat? I mean, a real one-to-one -one or a coffee with? I, I think you already mentioned her or I did, and that's Brenny Brown. I just find what she's doing. And, um, I, you know, she told the story about how she wanted to research. And she said, I want to research vulnerability. And they were like, uh-uh, that's, uh, a, you know, it's a pathway to suicide. And she's done it so effectively. And I think it's really started to help so many people in what is society which is you know it is stiff up a lip we don't talk about things often um, and and I think it's really helping us in whether it's leadership at homes and families and schools to talk about shame and to to better connect so I'd love to have a meal with her absolutely yeah no that's a great suggestion no I think she she don't her, not only does she what she talk about is embedded and evidence and research but as her way of describing it and communicating it and and um really impressive work that she does really really impressive okay well unless there's any other if you any other burning questions or comments or something you'd hope to have said sophie we haven't given you an opportunity to say no just looking forward to meeting you in the flesh and <laughs> and and going on this journey with you and i hope that i can really can contribute so thank you for having me today absolutely Thanks on behalf of Craig and I, huge thanks. Um, really important messages, Sophie, and, and hopefully will help others, and especially those who've experienced post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder so they feel less alone. Um, so thank you so much. 
and take care and goodbye. MQ Open Mind is presented by MQ Mental Health Research, the only organization that exclusively invests into scientific research around mental health. Our vision is to create a world where mental illnesses are understood, effectively treated and one day prevented. Please leave us a review and let us know what you think about the podcast. Each review helps us reach a wider audience. Visit mqmentalhealth.org to learn more about MQ and mental health research.